9. The Oslo Accords, Their Context, Their Consequences In September 1993, President Clinton presided over a handshake between Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat on the White House lawn, capping off a day of awe, as the press described it with reverence. The occasion was the announcement of the Declaration of Principles, DOP, for political settlement of the Israel-Palestine conflict, which resulted from secret meetings in Oslo sponsored by the Norwegian government. Independent negotiations had been underway between Israel and the Palestinians since November 1991, initiated by the United States during the glow of success after the first Iraq war, which established that what we say goes in the triumphant words of President George H.W. Bush. The negotiations opened with a brief conference in Madrid and continued under the guiding hand of the United States and, technically, the fading Soviet Union to provide the illusion of international auspices. The Palestinian delegation, consisting of Palestinians within the occupied territories, henceforth the internal Palestinians, was led by the dedicated and incorruptible left nationalist Haider Abdul Shafi, probably the most respected figure in Palestine. The external Palestinians, the PLO, based in Tunis and headed by Yasser Arafat, were excluded, though they had an unofficial observer, Faisal Husseini. The huge number of Palestinian refugees were totally excluded, with no regard for their rights even those accorded them by the UN General Assembly. To appreciate the nature and significance of the Oslo Accords and the consequences that flowed from them, it is important to understand the background and the context in which the Madrid and Oslo negotiations took place. I will begin by reviewing highlights of the immediate background that set the context for the negotiations, then turn to the DOP and the consequences of the Oslo process, which extend to the present and finally add a few words on lessons that should be learned. The PLO, Israel, and the United States had recently released formal positions on the basic issues that were the topic of the Madrid and Oslo negotiations. The PLO position was presented in a November 1988 declaration of the Palestinian National Council, carrying forward a long series of diplomatic initiatives that had been dismissed. It called for a Palestinian state to be established in the territories occupied by Israel since 1967 and requested the UN Security Council to formulate and guarantee arrangements for security and peace between all the states concerned in the region, including the Palestinian state, alongside Israel. The PNC Declaration, which accepted the overwhelming international consensus on a diplomatic settlement, was virtually the same as the two-state resolution brought by the Security Council in January 1976 by the Arab confrontation states, Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. It was vetoed by the United States then, and again in 1980. For 40 years, the United States has blocked the international consensus, and it still does, diplomatic pleasantries aside. By 1988, Washington's rejectionist stance was becoming difficult to sustain. By December, the outgoing Reagan administration had become an international laughingstock with its increasingly desperate efforts to pretend that, alone in the world, 
it could not hear the accommodating proposals of the PLO in the Arab states. Grudgingly, Washington decided to declare victory, claiming that at last the PLO had been compelled to utter Secretary of State George Shultz's magic words and express its willingness to pursue diplomacy. As Shultz makes clear in his memoirs, the goal was to ensure maximum humiliation of the PLO, while admitting that peace offers could no longer be denied. He informed President Reagan that Arafat was saying in one place, unk, 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 and in another he was saying, kul, 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 but nowhere will he yet bring himself to say uncle, conceding total capitulation in the humble style expected of the lower orders. Low-level discussions with the PLO would therefore be allowed, but on the understanding that they would be meaningless. Specifically, it was stipulated that the PLO must abandon its request for an international conference so that the United States would maintain control. In May 1989, Israel's Likud Labor Coalition government formally responded to Palestinian acceptance of a two-state settlement, declaring that there could be no additional Palestinian state between Jordan and Israel, Jordan already being a Palestinian state by Israeli dictate, whatever Jordanians and Palestinians might think and that there will be no change in the status of Judea, Samaria, and Gaza, the West Bank and Gaza, other than in accordance with the basic guidelines of the Israeli government. Furthermore, Israel would conduct no negotiations with the PLO, though it would permit free elections under Israeli military rule, with much of the Palestinian leadership in prison without charge or expelled from Palestine. In the plan proposed by Secretary of State James A. Baker, the new Bush administration endorsed this proposal without qualifications in December 1989. Those were the three formal positions on the eve of the Madrid negotiations, with Washington mediating as the honest broker. When Arafat went to Washington to take part in the Day of Awe in September 1993, the lead story in the New York Times celebrated the handshake as a dramatic image that will transform Mr. Arafat into a statesman and peacemaker, who finally renounced violence under Washington's tutelage. At the extreme critical end of the mainstream, New York Times columnist Anthony Lewis wrote that until that moment, Palestinians had always rejected compromise, but now at last they were willing to make peace possible. Of course, it was the United States and Israel that had rejected diplomacy, and the PLO that had been offering compromise for years. But Lewis's reversal of the facts was quite normal and unchallenged in the mainstream. There were other crucial developments in the immediate pre-Madrid, pre-Oslo years. In December 1987, the Intifada erupted in Gaza and quickly spread through the occupied territories. This broad-based and remarkably restrained uprising was as much of a response to the PLO in Tunis as it was to the occupying Israeli forces, their extensive system of military and paramilitary forces, surveillance and collaborators. The Intifada was not limited to opposing the occupation. It was also a social revolution within Palestinian society, breaking patterns of subordination of women, authority by notables, and other forms of hierarchy and domination. Though the timing of the Intifada was a surprise, the uprising itself was not, at least to those who paid any attention to Israel's U.S.-backed operations within the territories. Something was bound to happen. There is only so much that people can endure. 
For the preceding twenty years, Palestinians under military occupation had been subjected to harsh repression, brutality, and cruel humiliation, while watching what remained of their country disappear before their eyes as Israel conducted its programs of settlement, implemented huge infrastructure developments designed to integrate valuable parts of the territories within Israel, robbed them of resources, and put into place other measures to bar independent development, always with crucial U.S. military, economic, and diplomatic support, as well as ideological backing in shaping how the issues were framed. To take just one of the many cases that elicited no notice or concern in the West, shortly before the outbreak of the Intifada, a Palestinian girl, Intisar Alatar, was shot and killed in a schoolyard in Gaza by a resident of a nearby Jewish settlement. He was one of the several thousand Israelis who settled in Gaza with substantial state subsidies, protected by a huge army presence as they took over much of the land and the scarce water of the Strip, while living lavishly in 22 settlements in the midst of 1.4 million destitute Palestinians, as the crime is described by Israeli scholar Avi Raz. The murderer of the schoolgirl, Shimon Yifra, was arrested, but quickly released on bail when the court determined that the offense is not severe enough to warrant detention. The judge commented that Yifra only intended to shock the girl by firing his gun at her in a schoolyard, not to kill her. So this is not a case of a criminal person who has to be punished, deterred, and taught a lesson by imprisoning him. Yifra was given a seven-month suspended sentence while settlers in the courtroom broke out in song and dance, and the usual silence reigned. After all, it was routine. And so it was. As Yifra was freed, the Israeli press reported that an army patrol fired into the yard of a school in a West Bank refugee camp, wounding five children, likewise intending only to shock them. There were no charges, and the event again attracted no attention. It was just another episode in a program of illiteracy as punishment, as the Israeli press termed it, including the closing of schools, the use of gas bombs, the beating of students with rifle butts, and the barring of medical aid for victims. Beyond the schools, a reign of even more severe brutality that became yet more savage during the Intifada was enacted under the orders of Defense Minister Yitzhak Rabin. After two years of violent and sadistic repression, Rabin informed Peace Now leaders that the inhabitants of the territories are subject to harsh military and economic pressure. In the end, they will be broken and would accept Israel's terms as they did when Arafat restored control through the Oslo process. The Madrid negotiations between Israel and internal Palestinians continued inconclusively from 1991, primarily because Abdul Shafi insisted on an end to the expansion of Israeli settlements. The settlements were all illegal, as had repeatedly been determined by international authorities, including the UN Security Council among other resolutions in UNSC 446, passed 12-0, to 0, with the United States, the United Kingdom, and Norway abstaining. The illegality of the settlements was later affirmed by the International Court of Justice. It had also been recognized by Israel's highest legal authorities and government officials in late 1967, when the settlement projects were beginning. 
the criminal enterprise included the vast expansion and annexation of Greater Jerusalem, in explicit violation of repeated Security Council orders. Israel's position as the Madrid conference opened was summarized accurately by Israeli journalist Danny Rubinstein, one of the best-informed analysts on the topic of the occupied territories. He wrote that, At Madrid, Israel and the United States would agree to some form of Palestinian autonomy, as required by the 1978 Camp David Accords, but it would be autonomy as in a POW camp, where the prisoners are autonomous to cook their meals without interference and to organize cultural events. Palestinians would be granted little more than what they already had, control over local services, and the Israeli settlement programs would continue. While the Madrid negotiations and the secret Oslo negotiations were underway, these programs expanded rapidly, under first Yitzhak Shamir and then Yitzhak Rabin, who became prime minister in 1992, and boasted that more housing in the territories is being built during his tenure than at any time since 1967. Rabin explained the guiding principle succinctly. What is important is what is within the boundaries, and it is less important where the boundaries are, as long as the state of Israel covers most of the territory of the land of Israel, Eretz Israel, the former Palestine, whose capital is Jerusalem. Israeli researchers reported that the aim of the Rabin government was to radically expand the greater Jerusalem zone of influence, extending from Ramallah to Hebron to the border of Ma'ala Adumim near Jericho, and to finish creating circles of contiguous Jewish settlements in the greater Jerusalem zone of influence so as to further surround the Palestinian communities, limit their development, and prevent any possibility that East Jerusalem could become a Palestinian capital. Furthermore, a vast network of roads has been under construction, forming the backbone of the settlement pattern. The programs were expanded rapidly after the Oslo Accords, including new settlements and the thickening of old ones, special inducements to attract new settlers, and highway projects to cantonize the territory. Excluding annexed East Jerusalem, building starts increased by over 40% from 1993 to 1995, according to a Peace Now study. Government funding for settlements in the territories increased by 70% in 1994, the year following the Accords. Davar, the journal of the governing Labor Party, reported that Rabin's administration was maintaining the priorities of the ultra-right Shamir government it replaced. While pretending to freeze the settlements, Labor helped them financially even more than the Shamir government had ever done. Enlarging settlements everywhere in the West Bank, even in the most provocative spots. This policy was carried forward in the following years and is the basis for the current programs of the Netanyahu government. It is designed to leave Israel in control of some 40 to 50 percent of the West Bank, with the rest cantonized, imprisoned as Israel takes over the Jordan Valley and separated from Gaza, in explicit violation of the Oslo Accords, thus ensuring that any potential Palestinian entity will have no access to the outside world. The Intifada was initiated and carried out by the internal Palestinians. The PLO, in Tunis, tried to exert some control over the events, but with little success. The programs of the early 1990s, while negotiations were in process, 
deepened the alienation of the internal Palestinians from the PLO leadership abroad. Under these circumstances, it was not surprising that Arafat sought a way to re-establish PLO authority. The opportunity was offered by the secret negotiations between Arafat and Israel under Norwegian auspices that undercut the local leadership. As they were concluded in August 1993, the growing PLO estrangement was reviewed by Lami Sadoni, one of the few journalists who was keeping a close watch on what was happening among the Palestinians under occupation and in refugee camps in neighboring countries. Andoni reported that the PLO is facing the worst crisis since its inception as Palestinian groups, except for Fatah and independence, are distancing themselves from the PLO and the shrinking clique around Yasser Arafat. She reported further that two top PLO executive committee members, Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish and Shafiq Al-Hout, have resigned from the PLO executive committee, while Palestinian negotiators were offering their resignations, and even groups that remained inside were distancing themselves from Arafat. The leader of Fatah in Lebanon called on Arafat to resign, while opposition to him personally and to PLO corruption and autocracy were mounting in the territories. Along with the rapid disintegration of the mainstream group and Arafat's loss of support within his own movement, the speedy disintegration of the PLO's institutions and the steady erosion of the organization's constituency could render any breakthrough at the peace talks meaningless. At no point in the PLO's history has opposition to the leadership and to Arafat himself been as strong, Andoni observed. While for the first time there is a growing feeling that safeguarding Palestinian national rights no longer hinges on defending the PLO's role. Many believe that it is the leadership's policies that are destroying Palestinian institutions and jeopardizing Palestinian national rights. For such reasons, she observed, Arafat was pursuing the Jericho-Gaza option offered by the Oslo Agreement, which he hoped would assert the PLO's authority, especially amid signs that the Israeli government could go the extra ten miles by talking directly to the PLO, thus salvaging for it the legitimacy it is losing internally. Israeli authorities were surely aware of the developments within Palestine and presumably came to appreciate that it made good sense to deal with those who were destroying Palestinian institutions and jeopardizing Palestinian national rights before the population sought to realize its national goals and rights in some other way. Reaction to the Oslo Accords among Palestinians within the territories was mixed. Some had high hopes. Others saw little to celebrate. The provisions of the agreement have alarmed even the most moderate Palestinians, who worry that the accord consolidates Israeli control in the territories, Lemis Sandoni reported. Saeb Arakat, a senior Palestinian negotiator, commented that Apparently this agreement aims at reorganizing the Israeli occupation and not at a gradual termination. Even Faisal Husseini, who was close to Arafat, said that the accord is definitely not the beginning that our people were looking for. Haider Abdul Shafi criticized the PLO leadership for accepting an agreement that permitted Israel to continue its settlement policies and land appropriation, as well as the annexation and Judaization of its expanded Jerusalem area, and its economic hegemony over Palestinians, and refused to attend the celebration on the White House lawn. Particularly grating to many was what they saw as the shabby behavior of the PLO leadership 
including a pattern of ignoring Palestinians who have suffered through 27 years of Israeli occupation in favor of exiles coming from Tunis to take power, Yusuf Ibrahim reported in the New York Times. He added that PLO representatives were pelted with stones by Palestinian youths as they rode into Jericho in Israeli army jeeps. Arafat's provisional list for his governing authority revealed that he is determined to stack it with loyalists and members of the Palestinian diaspora, Julian Ozan reported from Jerusalem in the Financial Times, including only two Palestinian insiders, Faisal Husseini and Zakaria Alaga, both Arafat loyalists. The rest came from Arafat's loyal political factions outside the territories. A look at the actual contents of the Oslo Accords reveals that such reactions were, if anything, overly optimistic. The Declaration of Principles was quite explicit about satisfying Israel's demands, but was silent on Palestinian national rights. It conformed to the conception articulated by Dennis Ross, President Clinton's main Middle East advisor and negotiator at Camp David in 2000, and later a key advisor for Obama as well. As Ross explained, Israel has needs, but Palestinians have only wants, obviously of lesser significance. Article 1 of the DOP states that the end result of the process is to be a permanent settlement based on Security Council Resolutions 242 and 338. Those familiar with the diplomacy concerning the Israel-Palestine conflict should have had no difficulty understanding what this meant. Resolutions 242 and 338 say nothing at all about Palestinian rights, apart from a vague reference to a just settlement of the refugee problem. Later resolutions referring to Palestinian national rights were ignored in the DOP. If the culmination of the peace process is implemented along such lines, then Palestinians could kiss goodbye their hopes for some limited degree of national rights in the former Palestine. Further articles of the DOP spell all of this out more clearly. They stipulate that Palestinian authority extends over West Bank and Gaza Strip territory, except for issues that will be negotiated in the permanent status negotiations, Jerusalem, settlements, military locations, and Israelis. That is, except for every issue of significance. Furthermore, subsequent to the Israeli withdrawal, Israel will continue to be responsible for external security and for internal security and public order of settlements and Israelis. Israeli military forces and civilians may continue to use roads freely within the Gaza Strip and the Jericho area, the two areas from which Israel was pledged to withdraw, eventually. In short, there would be no meaningful changes. The DOP also did not have a word to say about the settlement programs at the heart of the conflict, which, even before the vast expansion under the Oslo process, were already undermining realistic prospects of achieving any meaningful Palestinian self-determination. In brief, only by succumbing to what is sometimes called intentional ignorance could one believe that the Oslo process was a path to peace. Nevertheless, this belief became virtual dogma among Western commentators and intellectuals. The Oslo Accords were followed by additional Israel-Arafat PLO agreements. The first and most important of these was Oslo II in 1995, shortly before Prime Minister Rabin was assassinated, a tragic event even if the illusions concocted about Rabin the peacemaker cannot sustain analysis.
The Oslo II Agreement is what one would expect to be crafted by intelligent law students assigned the task of constructing a document that would give U.S. and Israeli authorities the option of doing as they pleased while leaving room for speculation about more acceptable outcomes. When these outcomes remain unrealized, the blame can be laid on the extremists who have undermined the promise. To illustrate, the Oslo II Agreement stipulated that settlers, illegally, in the occupied territories, would remain under Israeli jurisdiction and legislation. In the official wording, the Israeli military government in the territories shall retain the necessary legislative, judicial, and executive powers and responsibilities in accordance with international law, which the United States and Israel have always interpreted as they chose, with tacit European acquiescence. Such latitude also granted these authorities effective veto power over Palestinian legislation. The agreement stated that any such legislation which amends or abrogates existing Israeli-imposed laws or military orders shall have no effect and shall be void ab initio if it exceeds the jurisdiction of the Palestinian Council, which had no authority in most of the territories and authority elsewhere only conditional on Israeli approval, or is otherwise inconsistent with this or any other agreement. Furthermore, the Palestinian side shall respect the legal rights of Israelis, including corporations owned by Israelis, related to lands located in areas under the territorial jurisdiction of the Council, that is, in the limited areas in which the Palestinian authorities were to have jurisdiction subject to Israeli approval. Specifically, their rights related to government and so-called absentee land, a complex legal construction that effectively transfers to Israeli jurisdiction the land of Palestinians absent from territories taken by Israel. The latter two categories constitute most of the region, though the government of Israel, which determines their boundaries unilaterally, provided no official figures. The Israeli press reported that unsettled state lands amounted to about half of the West Bank and total state lands to about 70%. Oslo too thus rescinded the decision of virtually the entire world and all relevant legal authorities that Israel has no claim to the territories occupied in 1967 and that the settlements are illegitimate. The Palestinian side recognized their legality, along with unspecified other legal rights of Israelis throughout the territories, including zones A and B, under conditional Palestinian control. Oslo II implanted more firmly the major accomplishments of Oslo I. All UN resolutions that have any bearing on Palestinian rights were abrogated, including those concerning the legality of settlements, the status of Jerusalem, and the right of return. That wiped out with a stroke virtually the entire record of Middle East diplomacy, apart from the version implemented in the unilateral U.S.-run peace process. The basic facts were not just excised from history, at least in U.S. commentary, but were officially removed as well. So matters have continued to the present. As noted, it is understandable that Arafat would leap at the opportunity to undercut the internal Palestinian leadership and to try to reassert his waning power in the territories. But what exactly did Norwegian negotiators think they were accomplishing? The only serious scholarly study of the matter, to my knowledge, is the work of Hilde Henriksen Wag, 
who had been commissioned by the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs to research the topic and was granted access to internal files, only to make the remarkable discovery that the documentary record for the crucial period is missing. Wag observes that the Oslo Accords were certainly a turning point in the history of the Israel-Palestine conflict, while also establishing Oslo as the world's capital of peace. The Oslo process was expected to bring peace to the Middle East, Wag writes, but for the Palestinians, it resulted in the parceling out of the West Bank, the doubling of Israeli settlers, the construction of a crippling separation wall, a draconian closure regime, and an unprecedented separation between the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Wag concludes plausibly that the Oslo process could serve as the perfect case study for flaws in the model of third-party mediation by a small state in highly asymmetrical conflicts, and that, as she puts it starkly, the Oslo process was conducted on Israel's premises, with Norway acting as Israel's helpful errand boy. The Norwegians, she writes, believed that through dialogue and a gradual building of trust, an irreversible peace dynamic would be created that could push the process forward to solution. The problem with this entire approach is that the issue is not one of trust, but of power. The facilitative process masks that reality. In the end, the results that can be achieved by a weak third-party facilitator are no more than the strong party will allow. The question to be asked is whether such a model can ever be appropriate. A good question. Worth pondering, particularly as educated Western opinion now adopts the ludicrous assumption that meaningful Israel-Palestine negotiations can be seriously conducted under the auspices of the United States as an honest broker. In reality, a partner of Israel for 40 years in blocking a diplomatic settlement that has near-universal support. <laughs>